0: Good evening, Sojourn. Good evening, evening, Sojourn. All right. Excited to be with you all this evening. My name is James Westbrook. I am one of the pastors here at Sojourn Community Church, and it's always a joy to be able to share the word with you. So please pray for me as I preach the word of God. Let's go to the word, to the throne. Let's pray, and let's get busy. Gracious Father, thank you for your word, Don't allow your people to leave the same way they came in. Lord, transform our hearts that we may be more like you. Lord, there's probably someone in this room right now that is on the fence trying to figure out what is Christianity. Do I want to make a commitment? Lord, I pray that you would speak to that person right now. Speak to their hearts, Lord, through your word and make them alive through your loving grace. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, today we start another series, another exciting and important series. This upcoming Tuesday marks the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation. Let's clap and give God some praise for the Reformation. Now, I realize that there may be people here that's like, well, what is the Reformation? You just have me clapping up here. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about the Reformation and why it is so important. You know, I'm sitting here doing worship and I'm listening to the songs, the songs that we declare week in and week out. That is a direct result of the Reformation the fact that we declare the love of God, the love that God has for us, the fact, the fact that we can declare that there's blood on the cross for us, the fact that we can declare that we have direct access to the Lord, the fact that we, de- that we can declare that God loves us with an insatiable love, all of that is a direct result of what happened at the Reformation. Now, you'll notice the language that we're using is called the five solas. That word literally is, means alone, sola, alone, not only, not only. Those are two different words. It's alone. That means that you can't add anything to, to it in order for it to be what it is. This is not cornbread mix. You don't add water to it. You don't have your style over here in the southern region and style over here in the Midwest, No, if God says by grace alone, by faith alone, by his word alone, for his glory alone, it's only alone that these things are true. You can't add anything to it. To do it is to compromise it. And so we're talking about the five solas. What was the Reformation about? The Reformation was essentially about addressing the question, was medieval theology, theology during the Middle Ages, is it correct? Did they have a correct interpretation of Christianity? That is what the Reformation is all about. It is in response, direct response to that question. It is the question of how does one become right with God? What justifies us? What makes us right? What makes God smile at us? What does it take and so this is what the reformers set out to do. Let me give you a little history on Martin Luther. Martin Luther King, Jr., by the way, is named after the Reformer, the German reformer, Martin Luther. Martin Luther was born in 1483. He was born to uh, some wealthy parents who became wealthy in the mining business in Germany. Well, uh, his father wanted him, wanted Luther to become a lawyer, and Luther did not want to become a lawyer. So on the way, in 1505, on a road, there was a a thunderstorm. This is a true story. You can't make this stuff up. There was a a thunderstorm, and while Luther was on the road, there was this lightning bolt that struck near him. And so during this time, uh, they believed in what we call patron saints. The patron patron saint is kind of like a guardian angel. It's the person that you can go to that they may represent you to the Lord. And so their patron saint was St. Anne. And so he called out to St. Anne, St. Anne, if you save me, I will become a monk. I'll stop this lawyer business and I will become a monk. Just save me, get me out of this situation. Well, I'm not sure if it was St. Anne. That's, well, I'm pretty sure it wasn't St. Anne that responded to him. Uh, but he was saved indeed and Martin Luther kept his word. During this time, the church was very very interesting theologically, theologically very interesting. I want you to know that during this time, um, most people were illiterate. They did not read, and nor did they have access to the Bible. They didn't know what the Bible said. They didn't know what Scripture said. What did they rely on? They relied on the teachings of the church, and they relied on the honesty of the church. I want you to keep it in mind as we move forward. As we're looking at this, in 1217, 300 years prior to Martin Luther's birth, the church had required all people in the church over the age of seven to confess their sins, to go to confessional. This really changed the spiritual climate of the church. Why is this important? Because they wanted to make sure that every single sin was accounted for. Every single sin had to be accounted for. So anyone above the age of seven during Luther's day, they were submitted to certain evaluations. They were asked certain things. They were rude. What did you do? Did you smile at a girl? Did you dance in a lustful dance? I think we can think about what, I think I know what a lustful dance is. Did you have any inappropriate conversations? They want to know every single sin. Why is this important? Because every single sin has to be accounted for. Now, for the, uh, for the Protestant, that means those that protested or those that are not Catholic, those that are not Eastern Orthodox as well, for them, we say that, well, wait a minute, it was already taken care of. I know it was taken care of. We begin to sing our songs. It was taken care of on Calvary. Well, not in this setting. Something had to be done about your guilt. Why? Because every time you sin, you take on certain liabilities and you take on certain guilt. It stains you and you got to do something to get rid of it. And so the church came up what we call indulgences. And indulgence was something that you could purchase in order to take care of the guilt, the stain of, of sin that you committed. The indulgence was also for another purpose. It was to lessen your time in what was called purgatory. Purgatory was the place that you went to to purge the sin that was still in you. Now, we didn't know how long the person was going to be in purgatory. It could have been 100 years. It could have been 1 million years. But what you did know that is if you bought an indulgence, it will lessen the time. And so in all of this, um, you have people like Johann Tetzel. He was one of the primary leaders in this movement. Why did they do this? Johann Tetzel went around in order to raise money to build uh, the cathedral that would be built in Rome, which is St. Peter's. All of this is important because this is the climate, this is the social climate that Luther is coming up in and coming up under. And Luther and people before him said that something is wrong about this picture. And because Luther became a monk, he began to realize that, wait a minute, there is some disconnection here between what the Bible says and what the church is teaching. And so while we're looking at this, we see that um, it's kind of like the telephone game. we almighty grown-up playing the telephone game. You know, it's, you know when, you stay, uh, when you start a message in one place and you go down the line, you whisper it through somebody's ear, and by the time that you got to the end of the line, the message changed. You know, you start off with saying that Jesus is, qu- is king, and then you end up with Jesus is mean. I, that doesn't make sense. That's a joke, y'all. Yeah, yeah, I can laugh. It's okay. i on, sis By the time you get to the end of it, it's changed. What the reformers are saying, people like Martin Luther, people like Zwingli or Melanchthon, people like John Calvin, what they're saying is that somewhere down the line, there has been a change in the message. The message is fundamentally different. Who can stand under this pressure? Who can stand under this pressure how am I right with God? And Luther was in desperate search of a happy God because he constantly believed that Jesus was frowning, on, uh, frowning at him. When we look at the five solas, what we're looking at are principal doctrines of Christianity. According to Martin Luther, it is on these doctrines that the church stands, and if it falls, the church falls. This is what ultimately leads Martin Luther to nailing uh, his 95 theses on the University of Wittenberg, the door there. He nailed his theses there and said, that this is what I believe the church is teaching. And we'll go more into that. I think the question that Martin Luther is asking is something that we're all asking even till this day, even as Protestants. What does God feel about me? We're starting off this series looking at sola gratia, God's grace alone. It's by God's grace alone that we are made right with God. What is it that makes God smile at me? One guy asked his friend, went to his friend and said, I always believe that God, I always think that God is frowning at me. His friend says that, oh, don't worry. It's only when you sin. Well, that's not very helpful. It says that, man, I sin too much. He's always frowning at me. You can see a little bit of this in looking at Luther's writing here. Luther says this when he's praying, when he was a monk. He says this, My conscience could never achieve certainty, but always in doubt and said, You have not done this correctly. You were not contrite enough. You omitted this in your confession. Therefore, the longer I tried to heal my uncertain, weak, and troubled conscience with human traditions, the more uncertain, weak, and troubled I continually made it. Luther said that he would later say that if there was anyone that would make it into heaven by monkery, I was the one. But I was buckling under the pressure, and I wasn't seeing the same Jesus that I was reading in scripture in the church that I was engaging in. And so, my hope is in just a short period that you will be convinced as well that it is, in fact, by grace alone that we are made right with God. And what that means is that there is nothing that we have to do, the, the Christian, in order to be made, made right with God, even after conversion. There's nothing that we're doing, it is being. Christianity spells. B-E. It spells D-O-N-E. It doesn't spell D-O. This is going to be a very uncomfortable doctrine today. I can promise you that. But that is what the doctrine of grace teaches us. All right. So let's look at the first one. We're only going to have two points today. I know your, your bulletin says three. Uh, it's just two. It's looked better in my head, so don't worry about it. It's just two, two points. First, we're going to look at what Luther Luther would come to realize is that salvation and justification is by grace alone. How you're made right with God is by grace alone. So first, let's look at the present of grace. Verse 15 says that, but the gift, but the gift. You notice here first that before he goes into his argument, Paul that is, that he first points out that this is a gift from God. How people are made right before him, it is a gift of God. Well, what's the gift? The gift is Ephesians 1. The gift is salvation. The gift is made rightness. This gift is good standing with God. The gift is that you're covered by the blood of another. The gift is Jesus Christ and all he has to offer to you. The gift is in Ephesians 1, blessed in the heavenly realm with every spiritual blessing in Christ chosen to be set apart and blameless, to be predestined for adoption, to have redemption, to have forgiveness of sins, to be lavished by the love of God with the ability to have wisdom and understanding pertaining to all things in life. That's the gift that we are offered through grace. That's the gift that goes unhindered through this gift. There's nobody that is there that should be there to filter that gift. It goes directly from Christ to the benefactor. Why is the gift offered? Why is it offered? Luther knew that the more you understood your sin, the more that you understood you, and the more I understand me, the more I understand why this needs to be a free gift. Well, we see that in verse 15 but the gift is not like the trespass for if the many die by the trespass of one man how much more did God's grace the gift that came by the grace of one man Jesus Christ overflow to the many it is necessary that we have it as a free gift because of our position when we're born into this world he's rooting this in the uh, in the gospel of genesis i call it a gospel he's rooting this in genesis genesis 3 he's rooting this in the garden he says that one man's sin equals total devastation one man's sin has all of us born into this world broken we have to revisit this i know i know this doctrine i know this doctrine i know this doctrine But I have to repeat the doctrine, because sometimes we can forget the doctrine. It is the belief that through one man, all of humanity was thrown in a broken relationship with God where we don't even know how to attach to God. Have you ever noticed that when children are born in this world, you do not have to teach them how to be disobedient? They just know that already. Most of my parenting is trying to teach my kids how to be obedient because they are disobedient masters. Now, I love my kid. I'm not throwing them up on the bus. It's the desperate state that we're born in, broken, filling around in the dark, searching for God. It is the very reason that we need non-for-profits in this world to roll back evil, to address the evil in the world to address sex trafficking, to address different evils, to address poverty, to address the killing of the unborn. That's why we need organizations like that, because of Adam's sins, the brokenness of the world, the brokenness of humanity. It's why we need military. It's why we need courtrooms to deal with sins, to deal with brokenness and, and grievances, it's why we have death, the deterioration of the human cell. Ultimately, this is the cause of sin. It is death. This is why we need this as a gift. We don't have to look very far. We don't have to look externally to notice that we need a, the, something from the outside to lift us from our wretched states. You can just look at your heart. Even as Christians, did I say that? Yes, you did. Don't be too surprised. Did I just think that? Yes, you did. Did I just do that? Yes, you did. And yes, I did. We are born in desperate need for a free gift. We need this free gift. By grace alone, Luther discovered that, listen, if one is made right with Christ— it's by grace alone, it's by His grace. Now we're going to go into the definition of that, but I want you to know that during this period, the church actually agreed with that statement, it's by grace alone. You are made right with God by grace alone, by His favor alone. It's by his favor alone, nothing. nothing it's, it's, it's God. They agreed with that statement, but they had very different understandings of grace. This is important. It's important for our later application. What is it that the, uh, the medieval church believed about grace? They believed that grace was more like a spiritual Red Bull. You just drink it, and it animates you, and it gives you what you need in order to, to make God proud. Uh, Luther would say that God will not deny grace to those that do their best. It helps you to do your best. That's what grace was. We have the same model today, don't we? What do we say? It's a lot like the teaching that God helps those who helps themselves. Oh, we love that statement in America. That's a part of the problem. If you don't properly understand the nature and the state that you're in, that Ephesians 2 tells us that you're dead in your trespasses, that you need somebody to make you life from outside, then you, then you won't understand that you can't help yourself. There's nothing that you can do to help yourself. As a matter of fact, if that were the case, then it wouldn't be grace anymore. We see that in Romans eleven five 5 and 6. What does Paul say to the Jews? Verse 5, he says that so, to at, so too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace, talking about Israel. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace will no longer be grace. It won't be grace anymore if you have to work for it. Pastor Justin Carl said it earlier. Christianity is the only religion where you don't have to work for it. Every other religion, you have to do something in order to get, in order to appease the God. Christianity says that you ain't got nothing to appease God with. Just relax. Hold on. There is a solution that is coming. See, there are certain things that can make the gift not the gift anymore. See, this is going to be a doctrine of keep the gift pure, keep the gift the gift. Well, what do I mean? Listen, if I were to give my man here, Brooks, a gift. I'm saying, here, brother, it's a gift. Now, if Brooks goes out and buys another gift in order to make it one up with me, in order to compete with me, then it's no longer a gift. Brother, just take the gift. Don't give me nothing. I don't need nothing. I'm good. You can give me a gift if you want to. (laughs) It's not a gift anymore when it becomes a competition. But there's also a posture to receiving a gift that you have to have if the gift is going to be a gift. There's a certain posture. My wife, I love my wife. My wife is a great manager in the home. She watches the money. She watches the receipts. But let me tell you something. When I buy gifts for my wife, she wants to know two things. How much did it cost and do you still got the receipt? How much does it cost? But you still got the receipt. Uh, I got a confession as a pastor here. Saturday, I was out on a date night with my daughter. Daddy daughter, daddy date night. We out. We finishing up. We're concluding. I'm walking out of the mall. There's a kiosk in the middle of the mall. If you work for a kiosk in the mall, I love you. Don't take this the wrong way. When I'm in the mall, I'm trying to get out of the mall. And someone says, excuse me, sir. Can I talk to you for a second? I stuck to the plan. I'm a trained individual. My wife trained me very well on this matter. I turned to her and I say, no, thank you. I'm not interested. I walk away and I turn and I begin to walk away. She said, okay, that's fine. Sir, but let me ask you a question. Everything within me said, don't turn around, James. I turned around. And I gave in. And I was stuck in, uh, into her arms and I bought the thing. I bought it. I brought it home as a gift. My wife said, how much did it cost, and where's the receipt? Just give it back. It ain't, it ain't a gift no more. Don't worry about it. Just give it back. The point here is that Luther is going to discover that if we're going to have a gift, if we're going to have, accept it as a gift, it has to come with a certain understanding. Grace does not equal a gift to those that deserve it. That is not the definition of Grace. The definition of grace is a gift to those that desire it. A gift to those that desire it. That's who the Lord is looking for. As he's looking down through the ages and as he is searching through the land, God is saying that I'm looking for those with a broken spirit and a contrite heart. To this I will draw nigh. And what we're also going to realize in Ephesians 2, and what the is going to realize in Ephesians 2, is that you don't even create that desire. You need the Lord. You need something, an agent from the outside to make you alive. Dead men, dead women don't speak. They don't desire. That is our spiritual state. Something has to happen from the outside. I love what Martin Luther says about this and how God chooses how he administers this grace and gives this grace. He says that the love of God does not find. There's nothing to find. It doesn't find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. Rather than seeking its own good, the love of God flows forth and bestows good. Therefore, sinners are attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. God look good right now. You're looking very attractive right now. But you're not that attractive to earn God's favor. See, the scripture here tells us that, no, God makes you attractive. God doesn't find when he goes out. Who has not sinned? All have sinned and fall short from the glory of God. God creates people anew creates them, it creates them, and it's out of what we call nihilo out of nothing. You had nothing to offer God. It's a free gift. And it is the difference with, between understanding religious grace and gifted grace. Religious grace and gifted grace. Religious grace looks like this. It looks like a ladder. It looks like a ladder. We're always climbing, always working, always trying to gain God's favor, and this is very much what Luther felt during his day. I have to do one more thing if I'm going to get God's favor. There's always something else I have to do. Luther will later fall in love with biblical grace, gifted grace, grace that is a gift, and it looks more like this. Receiving hands, receiving hands, you're not working for it. You're not working for it. You're simply receiving. There's nothing that Luther could offer. There's nothing that I can offer. There's nothing that I can offer. When we look at the reality of our states before God, when we look at the reality of our hearts, who can know the heart? It typically, it generally should overwhelm us, but thank God his grace keeps us. Lord, why do you want me? Why did you save me? The best answer that we can come up with is, it is because it was a free gift from you. There's nothing that I could have done. Amen? Next, we want to look at the potency or the power of grace the potency or the power of grace that is to say that god's grace is stronger than your sin look at verse 16 he says nor can the gift of god be compared with the result of one man's sin the judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification He says that this is not a comparison. This is not a comparison. There's no comparison between what we see in Adam's sin bringing judgment and what we see with Jesus' work in bringing justification. I love the math. Did you see the the equation there? With, with, With Adam's sin, you have it following one sin. Judgment follows one sin. But God's grace comes after zillions, billions of countless sins. Jesus' grace comes after countless sins. Jesus' grace comes after countless sins. Countless sins. What does that mean? It means that this is the radical nature of God's love. It means that while you were yet sinners, Christ uh, demonstrated his love for you by dying on the cross for you. It had nothing to do with your sin. It had nothing to do with whether or not you would sin or whether or not you you wouldn't sin. It has nothing to do with that. The grace comes after the sins that have been committed. Why? Uh, What does it mean? which means that it comes despite the sins that have been committed. It comes despite it. It comes in light of it. Why is Jesus not worried about all of the sins? Why is Jesus not worried about it? Because he said that through my work, I'm taking the penalty of these sins, of every single sin that was committed in the past, that was committed in the present, and that will be committed forevermore for the Christian, for those that will place their life in me, their trust in me. He says that, and I will place all of it on me, the penalty of all of it. This is why to the true Christian, what the favor of God affords us is his smile at us. I believe that because of the doctrine of grace, God is always smiling at his people. He's not frowning at his people. And I believe that somebody needs to know that. He's not, if you are a Christian, now this can only go for the Christian. I realize that there may be someone in this room that are still looking to what is Christianity and what is this all about. To the true Christian that have confessed with their mouth and believed in their heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and was risen from the dead. Those that believe that Jesus Christ lived the life that they should have lived and died the death that they should have died because of sin, because of their sin. The Christian, the promise is for you that God never frowns at you. He's smiling at you. And the assurance that we have about this is that God gives his grace and light of all of these sins that will be committed by you and I. This is a part of the, the scandalous nature of grace. The scandalous nature of grace is this for the Christian. When it comes to the favor of God on your life, it doesn't matter what you do. Just sit up under that for a couple of seconds. Every legalistic bone in my body wants to say, but, hold on. You can't just say stuff like that. That's too much grace. No, this is the word of God. This is the one, the places, the few places in scripture where God wants that but out of the way. No pun intended. Pun intended as well. Both in. Take both ways. God doesn't want that in the way. He says that, no, there's nothing that you can do. There's nothing that you can do to earn my favor, and there's nothing that you can do to sustain my favor. I love you because it's my prerogative. It's my holy prerogative. There's two uh, principles of grace that I want us to understand here. One, the rest of God's grace. That's the invitation for the Christian to rest in God's grace. And the other is the transformative power of God's grace. The transformative power of God's grace. We don't bathe in this enough. We don't stand in the grace of God enough. We don't take advantage of the grace of God and what it affords us enough. As a matter of fact, there are periods that we probably see that we're at each other's throats, Christian couples, Christian friends looking at one another, sin where one another, sin where we fall, sin where our weaknesses are and picking at it and angry at it. Oh, we know, we, we argue with one another, don't we? Oh, I forgot, with Christian, we don't argue. We just go back and forth. No, you argue. You got seasons of beef. You got seasons where you're saying that, Lord, I need more grace right now. I need you to intervene right now in my life. I know because I know my own life and I know humanity, so I know you. We ain't talking about some pleasant sins, pretty sins. We're talking about the reality of our condition, y'all. Let's be real. We need God's grace. I don't need a wimpy grace. I need an aggressive grace. So the invitation today is to rest in God's grace and be transformed by his grace. To the Christian parent, we fear that every decision will either ruin our child or set our child up to be, to be the next president. That's the type of pressure that we put on ourselves. The response to that is that, Lord, I rest in your grace, knowing that your transformative grace is faithful in making me more, a more godly parent when I fear that what I've been striving for my entire life won't amount to what I want, my response is, Jesus, I rest in your grace knowing that your transformative grace will mature me and trusting that all things work together to the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. When I know that I'm not doing The response is that, Jesus, I rest in your grace, knowing that your transformative grace will revive my heart and give me fresh, new passions. When Satan reminds me of my past, I remind him of his future. And my response is that, Lord, I rest in your grace, knowing that your transformative grace will assure me of more victories over my sin as I mature into the image of Christ. When I mess up, when I'm disobedient, which is often, my response is, Jesus, I rest in your grace knowing that your transformative grace will not allow me to stay in the same place I began. That's the beautiful nature of God's grace. It is transformative. It is moving us. God won't leave us. God won't let us stay the same. If we are Christian, you will not stay the same even within those sins that you're struggling with for long periods of time, God will not allow you to stay in that place forever. When I fear that you don't like me, Lord, when I fear that people don't like me, when I feel that I'm not lovable, Jesus, I rest in your grace, knowing that your transformative grace has already transformed me into someone Worthy of your smile. For some people, this is too much grace. No, you can't just declare that. No, you got to do something. You got to do something. We gotta. It's natural for us to want to self-justify. I got to do something to make myself right with God. I got to do an indulgence. Someone give me something to do. Maybe if I put a little bit more money in the trade. Maybe if I come to church after what I did last week, maybe if I would just do more, maybe if I help somebody. God says that there's no attempt of goodness that is good enough. That's the reality of our great gospel. When it comes to thinking that this is too much grace, I love what Charles Spurgeon has to say. He says that if people do not like the doctrine of grace, give them all the more of it. Give them more of it. You don't sip from grace. You immerse in grace. This is also obviously an invitation for us to practice responsible grace. This is why Paul would say, just moments later in this letter, Romans 6, verses 1 and 2, when it comes to getting this grace from God, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, how can we who die to sin still live in it? Listen, to treat sin lightly is to ultimately treat lightly the work it took to satisfy the penalty of sin, which is death. To treat sin lightly is to say that, that what Jesus um, endured in being tortured and humiliated and suffering in his death was insignificant. No, that's not what we advocate for. But what we do advocate for is true rest, knowing that I don't do that I may be loved. I love, so I do. The hardest thing is to be convinced of this love. Luther makes a comment about this. He says that, To be convinced in our hearts that we have forgiveness of sins and peace with God by grace alone is the hardest thing. What we want to say is that, Lord, surely there's something else I have to do. The Lord says to the Christian, rest. He reminds the Christian of this every week when we meet. Every week we meet, we're reminded of this love and this grace he has for us when we take the Lord's Supper. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. Take and partake of the grace that I have assured for you. Likewise, he takes the cup, cup of wine and, lifted, and said, this is my blood, the blood of my new covenant. Take and drink. For as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. For the Christian, this is a wonderful opportunity to come and sup on the grace that God has provided and demonstrated through his broken body on the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago. Eat and eat well. Take a big piece off. It's all right. But for the unbeliever, for the person who is investigating Christianity a little bit more, I want to invite you, one, to abstain from this meal as it is for the Christian. But there's an invitation for you. There's an invitation that says that, listen, there is a responsibility for all humans to realize that they have been born into this world with a broken relationship with God. Something has to happen between now and death that would reconcile you to your God. If you are going to be with the Lord and have eternal life forever, you must be reconciled to this great God through faith and confession and realizing your desperate need for him. It is as simple as saying that, Lord, reveal yourself to me. Please, that's the same thing I said 20 years ago. I don't know if you're real, Lord, but if you are real, I need you to show yourself to me. Because if you don't show yourself to be real to me, I don't know what to believe. Let the Lord test them and watch and see that he will show himself to you. With that comes eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, shall not face condemnation that comes apart from life with Christ, but have everlasting life. We would love to talk with you. At Sojourn, our tradition is to take a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup. You can dip it in wine or juice, whatever your conscience permits. Uh, This is, uh, the the wine is marked by twine, the juice is not, and we have gluten-free options to my left and to your right. Let's pray.